Welcome to the Self-Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self-Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How are you doing today? Great to see you. My name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, uh, we're really glad you're here. Really hoping to get you connected. You're joining us in the third week uh, of this series called What If We? If you're joining us online later at some point, it's really great to see you as well. Um, Before we jump into this, we're going to read a passage from a book called Romans, written by a guy called Paul. Um, But just just before we get into that, my wife and I, with our kids, are going on vacation uh, this week, just uh, off to Minnesota for a few days. And we were going to drive. Nice road trip. I love road trips with the family. Uh, And now we are not because the car broke. Uh, And my wife is delightedly happy about this fact. Uh, So much so that I'm beginning to get a little suspicious. I'm like checking the fuel tank for sugar and stuff. Like, did you have to break it so well? (laughs) You did a really good job. But now we're flying. So we're off to Minnesota where we will hopefully catch some fish. But because it's Minnesota, even if we don't catch fish, mosquitoes will definitely catch us. And because it's, because it's Minnesota, they're big enough to carry you away as well. So hopefully we come back. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, if you're following along in a text in front of you, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. He's good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many parts, these parts do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each part belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is encouragement, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. And then these are the two verses we're going to land on today. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Man, there's a lot in that, so let's pray and we'll get into this passage. Uh, Jesus, as we take this text, we believe that you breathed on this book and it became alive. Would you breathe on us and bring life to us in new ways? Each of us are on different stages of a journey and we come to you just as we are. We love the fact that you accept us in this place and yet you love us too much to leave us there. For whatever you have for us, we open up our hearts. Amen. So for the last three weeks, we've been jumping into this series. We've been talking about this. this we're wrestling with this question. 
what does a church of Jesus look like? Now, on one hand, there's how it looks across all of time. And then on the other hand, there's how it looks specifically in this context, in this area, in this place, for this specific community at this time. So for the last two weeks, we've wrestled on this big sort of macro level. As you walked in, you may have seen we have a big thing on our wall that says, living in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. That is something that could be true of any church anywhere. Hopefully that's just how we choose to express it. Uh, But then we wrestled with this question, well, how do you take the teachings of Jesus and boil them down to something in particular? Wherever you are in terms of your faith journey, you may believe that Jesus is who he said he was, or you may just think, you know, I'm not really sure right now. But even if you're not sure, he's still one of the greatest moral teachers ever to live. And he taught for three years. And so there's all of this stuff to sort of examine, to to come to grips with. What, What is the centerpiece of what Jesus taught? And when he was asked the question, what's the centerpiece of all the law, all of the rules? He said, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love your neighbor. But as we've wrestled with these things for the last couple of weeks, they're maybe not quite as simple as they seem on the surface. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul and your mind. It, it began as like a, almost like an ethical imperative. This is something that you should do. You should work at doing. And yet, as we wrestled with it, what we said is really loving God begins with knowing God loves you. You can never really love God in the way that he would long for you to love him without knowing you are loved exactly as you are with all of your brokenness, all of your failures, all of your struggle, all of the things you don't like about yourself. The God of the universe right now says you are loved and accepted like that. And then love your neighbor. Well, that sounds easy on the surface, but as we wrestled with what Jesus really meant by love your neighbor, what we said is this, it's, it's not just love the neighbors that you like. It's not just love the neighbors that help you redo your fencing. It's not just the neighbors that help you by mowing your grass. It's love the neighbors that do the opposite of those. We have this one neighbor that we have a tension relationship with. He has these huge dogs that bark at our kids all the time. And and every now and again, when you're working on that part of the yard, suddenly you'll just have this moment where the fence will quake as this 130-pound dog hammers himself into this fence and scares the life out of me and my kids. (laughs) And yet, these are the neighbors that we're called to love, the, the ones with the tension, not the ones without the tension. Love God and love your neighbor on the surface sounds easy, and yet it has its challenges. And now we get to move on to, to, to an, well, a more, not a more interesting part, but an equally interesting part. We've looked at what the general church looks like, but now we get to wrestle with what does God have for us at South over the next few months? How do we figure out living in this particular community at this particular time? Yes, we are a Jesus people, We don't believe Jesus just came into the world to teach. We believe he came into the world to do something very specific, nothing short of redeeming us and this whole world around us. But what kind of community in amongst that are we called to be? What what are our needs and, and how do we shape that? And so in conversations with elders, with different staff people over the last few months, this is something that came out. What if we became a Jesus people who are relationally connected, deeply formed and outward reaching. It starts with the fact that we need relationships. It's supposed to happen in that crucible. 
And yet, there's this other step from there that those relationships make it possible that you and I could actually become different people. The deep soul work that needs to happen, the deep issues that we wrestle with, those may actually start to be shaped. And if that word formed seems unusual to you, maybe formed or formation is language you're unfamiliar with, this isn't new language, this is Bible language. Paul talks about, in one of his letters, he says, my heart aches, it is, is restless until Christ is formed in you. There's this longing in the pages of the New Testament to see us become different people. And yet where we see that happens is in the language or the, the process of relationships. And there's maybe a possibility as we are changed people, then that leads us to be people that actually are compelling in the world around us. Jesus was compelling to those around him, even those that hated organized religion. And when we become like him, the, the implication is maybe we become compelling people as well. People that ran from church or its equivalent of the time ran towards Jesus. And what if we became those types of people? Other language that you might use around this is that this is supposed to be a place where you are known and know so you can grow and you can go. And that is something that can be true for all of us. And then here's the tension. As much as that is true, aren't relationships just difficult at times? Sometimes all of us would say starting new relationships, working on old relationships, fixing broken relationships is something that we struggle with doing. As I think about places I've lived around the country, I have some wonderful relationships. Back in Michigan, where I did ministry for five, six years. In New York, where we also spent some time doing ministry. Back in England, where I have some deep early relationships, and some of those people have moved all over the world now. And I miss the relationships. They, they are painful to lose. Now I'm glad that I have them, I'm glad that I made those trips, and, and if I had never moved from England to Michigan, I would never have built those deep friendships there. Had I never moved again, I would never have built the next one, but, but it can be hard at times to think about starting again. And maybe this is particularly relevant to us in this season as we come out of a pandemic where we may say, I'm missing some of my old relationships. Now, I have this thesis about church relationships. It's, it's this. I think we find our group within a church. Now, South, say South is about 400 or so people. We have a couple of services. You cannot really know everybody well in that size of group. So what generally happens is this, and I think it's fairly healthy. You find your niche. You find your group of people, your tribe, and you get to sit with them, and you get to enjoy them and have relationships with them, and, and you never really look up and notice that you don't know most of the people in the room well. And that's fine, that's good. But sometimes there's this moment where suddenly you realize your little tribe has it's disappeared for whatever reason. Maybe it's just we're a transient society, maybe it's one thing or another, and, and then suddenly that absence makes you look up. And there's this feeling of, I feel like I'm in a room of strangers. It can be hard when you go through that to say, I want to do relationships again, especially as most of us have some hesitancy at different points in our life. It tends to vary from person to person, but the truth is all of us have been through times where relationships are hard. I have this recollection of being about 16, 17 years old, which is about the time in my life I found relationships the hardest. I just didn't know where I fit, and I struggled to make those connections that I wanted to make. And so I made some strange decisions at this time. One of those decisions will sound irrelevant when I first say it, but it is relevant to the story. I decided to stop washing my hair. <laughs> Just stopped. 
Now, apparently there's this theory that if you don't wash your hair for six weeks, it will start washing itself. But before that, you have to go through what's called the sheep phase, where you literally smell like a sheep. And I, I tested this to the utmost, and so I have this recollection of this moment. I'm walking back from college towards the bus, and it pours with rain. And so I, I make a dash and soaking wet climb onto the bus and sit there for a couple of minutes and then start to think, wow, this bus smells worse than usual. <laughs> this bus smells kind of like sheep. And it took me a couple of minutes to realize that the bus didn't smell. It was me that smelled. I was the thing that stank. And so I had to sit there for 20, 30 minutes with just this experience of being, I'm the thing, I'm the problem, I don't fit, I'm the outcast. Now that, that story, that 20 minutes, that 30 minutes is really, a, it's a microcosm for what that period in my life looked like. I don't feel like I fit, I don't feel like I'm wanted, I feel like I'm the problem. For me, it was a brief period. For some of you, you might say it's the whole of your life, but there's just this, this experience of I don't know how to make relationships in this time. I feel like an outcast. We even have created places, which the philosopher Mark Orger would call non-spaces. Places where there are lots of people, and yet it's a place where I am neither known nor know. Airport concourses, supermarkets are these places. There is lots of activity, lots of people, and yet you go, get to go about your life with this vague anonymity. Now, some of you would be honest and say, I love that truth. You're the guys that celebrated when they put those self-checkout things in the supermarket. You're like, now I don't have to talk to anybody and this is wonderful. You're the people that if the checkout guy or girl knows your name, you're like, I'm finding a different supermarket. This is intolerable. I didn't come here for relationship. I came here for anonymity. And yet there's this tension because we sometimes chase after this thing of not being known or known and yet most of the Bible writers across the spectrum would say relationships are necessary and important. Whether that is right back in the beginning where God says of man, it is not good for man to be alone. Or a passage like this in Proverbs 27 verse 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Across the spectrum, there are these different writers that say relationships are inherent to being human. There is a tension between how much we want to do them, and yet they are necessary. They are important. And the same is true of the passage that we're going to jump back into now, this Romans 12 passage. But before we get that, let me just check the time, because I feel like I overran in the first service. I got about two-thirds of the way through. I've got, I've got a third left to go, and it was closing time. Now, the good news is you guys are the second service. So I've, I've, I've recalibrated and I've shortened everything. No, I haven't. <laughs> I'm just like, you guys can't go anywhere. There's no service to follow. You're stuck. We're pushing through, people. Panera Bread will be here at one. Um, the, there's this truth as we look at different passages of the Bible that as Westerners, one of the things we're very good at at times is knowing specific verses within the Bible. We can pull out, pick out some of our favorites, especially because around the 10th century, some kind person went through and put addresses across the Bible. They gave us chapters and verses that weren't there initially. So we might say something like, I love Jeremiah 29 verse 11. It says, God knows the plans he has for me, plans to give me a hope and a future. Now that's fine and true, 
And yet that verse has context, historical context that is important, and we often miss it because we zone in on those very detailed passages. So before we read Romans 12, again, what I'd love to do is give you a challenge. As you go home, if you like reading the Bible, try reading Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8 before you read Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 7, this this pastoral letter that Paul writes to this church in Rome, there's this moment in chapter 7 where he starts to talk about how broken he feels. He says, the things that I want to do, the good things I want to do, I just, I don't get around to doing them. And the, the bad things that I'm determined not to do, those are the things that I end up doing. He starts lamenting his human condition. Wretched man that I am, who will free me from this body of death? And then in chapter 8, he starts to celebrate this idea that, well, who will free me? Jesus will. Life in the Spirit, that is what has created this new way of living. And he starts to celebrate there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has freed me from the law of sin and death. This passage is transcendent. And Romans chapter 8, it hits these incredible heights. And then in chapter 9, he starts this debate about the relationship between the church and the nation of Israel. It feels like a tangent, and I say that as a guy who loves tangents. Listening to me preach is like being on a golf cart with someone who just changes his mind about which direction they're going. I love to just swing the wheel and go off in another direction, and it feels like Paul does that at times as well. And so he jumps into 9, 10, and 11, this big discussion, and we can feel kind of lost, kind of out of touch. This feels maybe like it belongs to a different age. But then in chapter 12, I would suggest he comes back to this idea of life in the spirit, but not just the big spatial language, but he starts to talk about, well, what does life in the spirit look like practically? What does it look like for a church, a Jesus people community to live that kind of life? Try reading 7, 8, and then jumping to 12 and just see how it illuminates some of this passage. But here we go, back to the start. Verse 1, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. As some of your versions, if you have a version in front of you, it might say this is your um, spiritual act of worship. This is your reasonable act of worship. It's talking about how life in the spirit enables to to live this relationship with God, to know him, to, to worship him fully, how it leads to this change, this renewing of your mind. And then he goes on to talk about the community in general. For by, grace given, by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many, says here, members, it may say parts, and those members do not have all the same function. So in Christ, we though many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. He starts to sketch out, we're in this together. And you are needed. You have gifts, you have skills that other people don't have. You and I each have a part to play. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. 
If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. And all the time is building this picture of what a Jesus community looks like. It involves this worship and knowing of the God of the universe, but living together, recognizing our different gifts and parts to play. And then he's going to move from talking about what we do to how we do it. Love must be sincere. And this passage, it's like this staccato beat, especially when you read it in the original language. Even great commentators on the book of Romans say, I don't know where he got all these ideas from. There's so many things that he's going to ask us to do, and it feels like he pulls them from all different sources. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. Serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope. Patient in affliction. Faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. It's boom, 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 boom. And I cut it off halfway. There's another whole list that just keeps on going and it can leave you with this feeling of, Paul, how can I do all of this stuff? There is so much stuff that you're throwing at me. What am I supposed to do to apply this whole list to my life? And so today we're just going to land on verse 9 and verse 10. Love must be sincere. Love must be sincere. When he chooses to say this, he picks up on a word that Jesus uses all the time. As Jesus is talking to the religious leaders of his day, he has a lot of tension with them, and, and this is one of the phrases he uses, you hypocrites. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Jesus uses this phrase, hypocrites, which in Greek is, is hypocrite. It means quite literally one who wears a mask, an actor, a performer, a stage player, somebody who isn't real, somebody who's fake, somebody who is covered up. Around four miles from the town that Jesus grew up in was a big town, Nazareth. This town that you may have heard of is maybe 200, 400 people in the first century. And just down the road, there is a big town on a hill. It's maybe where Jesus got his image of a city on the hill cannot be hidden. Uh, and 25,000 people lived in this town. For the first century, this is a large community. It makes Nazareth look insignificant. And within this community is a theater. Now, when we read in the Bible that Jesus was a carpenter, well, well, that could have been true. And yet the word tecton doesn't really just mean carpenter. If you look at pictures of the Middle East, there aren't a lot of trees to do woodwork with, but there's an awful lot of stone. So the probability is that Jesus was an engineer, a stonemaker, a carpenter. Many of these things rolled into one as he trained with his father. It's quite possible that Jesus' father or Jesus himself may have helped build this theater just a few miles away in his early years, although it's a little bit dangerous to go on the track of saying Jesus may have done this when he was little. There's this whole group of people, no word of a lie, 
rabbi in England who believed Jesus sailed to England when he was a young man. And it's very important to them and they even wrote songs about it and it's almost certainly not true and yet it's dangerous to go down these tracks. But it seems a little bit more likely that Jesus traveled to a town four miles from his house than 4,000 miles across the Mediterranean Ocean. So we'll go with it. But this theater, whether he went there or not, whether he helped build it or not, this is the place that he pulls this language from of Hippocrite. These are people that wore masks. Greek acting centered around masks. When you were seated so far back from the stage, it was the only way you knew which character was which and what emotions they were showing in a particular time. So I bought you some masks. Uh, Now, it's harder to buy masks online than it used to be because if you search for masks, you just come up with medical masks and stuff. These are harder to get. Uh, But these are like, you can see the different emotions that they show, and I'll put one on for you just because it'll look weird. Um, There we go, look at that. My kids wore these and it was terrifying. Um, And so these were the type of masks that they would wear, and it would allow the people at the back to say, oh, I kind of know what is going on on the stage. It was necessary for them to wear masks for what they did. When Jesus pulls this word, what he says is, you wear masks in everyday life. You cover up who you really are and you pretend. So when Paul picks up this language of hypocrite, he adds a no to it. And an hypocrite, he says, when you love, it must be done without a mask. It must be done without a mask. You cannot pretend and love well. In Dan Elliott's favorite translation of the Bible, the New Living Translation, it says simply this, don't just talk about it, really love each other. It seems a Jesus community at its heart, in Paul's mind, accepts people as they are, wherever they are, whatever they look like. And relationships start with that kind of acceptance. And yet I wonder whether there's a different emphasis on wearing masks that's relevant for us today, one that Paul may not have recognized. There's this movie uh, that came out in 2010. It's a documentary called Catfish. Some of you may have seen it. The the guy that directed it, Nev, falls in love with someone online. As they begin to chat, as they begin this relationship, she starts to send him pictures of herself and he starts to look at a social media profile and and it's incredible. She's beautiful, she's a model, she's also a photographer and a director. She paints and she writes poetry and she writes music that's beautiful and, and she starts to send him these different things and he's falling massively, wildly in love with her and his brother and his friend say, do you know what, we need to film this because when they get married one day, we can show this whole process and the relationship working out. And then he starts to get suspicious, starts to wonder about some of the things he's been sent. He notices that most of her friends on social media have only existed for just a few weeks, starts to Google some of the lyrics of her poetry, of her music, and finds that most of the stuff is already online done by somebody else somewhere. Some of the songs she's sent him are sung by apparently her, but with a different name. And so his friends say to him, we've got to drive and we've got to go and see her. And so they drive from New York all the way to Michigan to to meet this woman and she opens the door and she doesn't look like a picture. And she hasn't painted anything. And she doesn't write poetry. And she lives at home in a relationship that's full of struggle. She looks after her two kids that are disabled and she, she isn't what she put on social media. And he doesn't say anything. 
She invites him in and they chat and they interact. And it's not till the last day that he says, well, look, we've got to talk about this. You're not, you're not who you said you are. And of course, she breaks down and she starts to talk about just her, her struggle with life. And, and really what seems to be at the heartbeat of it is this. She doesn't believe she will be loved for who she is. When we ask the question, if Jesus and Paul both suggest that life is, needs to be lived without the mask, and while Paul suggests that we must offer love in this sincere way without mask, I would suggest that love is this two-way relationship and it must be received without a mask as well. And if we ask this question, why do we wear masks? I would say that we live in suspicion that there is a me behind the mask that others would despise or even reject. When I mentioned that earlier story, that garden story that really grounds all of our stories, when we think back to this Adam and Eve characters that were told about, this is what we are told about their relationship. After the fall, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. I don't know what you believe as individuals about the Bible in general and this particular passage. You may believe it's 100% true and that God made the world in six days. You may have tensions with it. But, but what I would say about this is that we see that regardless of how each of us think of it as individuals, it is always true of us humanly. We by nature hide from God and from others because we live in suspicion that there is a me behind the mask that others will despise or even reject. Our struggle with masks is not just that we cover up and we don't offer sincere love to others, but, but it's that we don't believe that we are worthy of the love of others. Shakespeare apparently said this, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players." When we take that word, that idea of, of an actor is one who wears a mask, that is true of so many of us so much of the time. We wear masks, and yet we live in this tension of needing relationships. If we are honest, this is River Dave. River Dave lived as a hermit in, um, I think it was Connecticut, for 30 years. Built himself a little house on the side of the road with logs he cut down for himself, started to grow his own crops, and saw as few people as possible until his house burnt down. Could no longer live the life he used to live and news cameras got hold of it. All these people tried to come and help him and he started having to interact with different people. And this is what he said about this process. Maybe the things I've been trying to avoid are the things that I really need in life. I grew up never being hugged or kissed or any close contact. I had someone ask me once about my wife, did you really love her? And the question kind of shocked me for a second. I, I've never loved anybody in my life. And I shocked myself because I hadn't realized that. And that's why I was a hermit. Now I can see love being expressed that I never had before. Maybe the things I've been trying to avoid are the things that I really need in life. For a man who did solitary for 30 years, we live in a suspicion that there is a me behind the mask that others would despise or even reject, and yet we long to be seen and valued for our authentic self. We long to be seen 
and valued for our authentic self. It seems like in Paul's language of, of love must be sincere, he would say to us, whether you are the person giving love or receiving love, wherever you are in that two-way relationship, it seems like he would say it's okay to take off the mask. Now, Teresa, our communications director, would love me to emphasize that this is not medical advice. Just so you know, this is the metaphorical mask, and I am not qualified medically to tell you whether or not you should wear a mask in public. Just to be clear, love must be sincere. It is done without a mask. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love. Paul in this passage somehow manages to use almost every Greek word for love possible, and there are a few of them. He talks about the divine love of God. He talks about brotherly affection. He talks about the commitment to family, all in just a few sentences, and it seems that he wants us to know that love is inherent to this Jesus-type community. It is the center piece of all of it, and it must be done without a mask. It is done without a mask. But isn't there a tension in that passage? Heat what is evil, cling to what is good. So often we see the brokenness in us and in others, and yet we're told to keep clinging to each other in spite of it. When we remove the masks, when we allow people into that kind of relationship, it is possible that some of the stuff that they will see and that we will see will not be the most beautiful. And yet this is the life that we are told to live. A Jesus community accepts people as they are while also believing that God has a new story for each of us to move into. There is this beauty in this Jesus who accepts people exactly as they are and yet has new things for them, has the possibility of transformation. And it seems like a Jesus community, well, that requires the same sort of faith. And so as the worship team come back, as we sort of start to close out the service, service I guess my question for us is, what brave steps might you need to take this season? It may be that it is just simply believing that there are new relationships to experience. It may be just believing there are new friendships to step into. It may be serving in a way that you haven't served before. To do what Dana did and make this journey from connecting to serving to building these friendships around her that she needed and seeing this transformational formation that goes along with it. In this place, I know and am known. I would suggest that there's this risk that post-pandemic churches become those non-spaces that we talked about where we would say, here I neither know nor am known, and yet a Jesus community requires us being a place where I can say, I know and I am known. And yet that takes some awful risks at times. Maybe the things I've been trying to avoid are the things that I really need in life. Let's pray together. God, as we wrestle with who South is in this season, as you shape us as a community and as individuals, it may require some brave choices. It's okay to lament the relationships that were, and yet there is a new season for new relationships that require stepping into them bravely. Not easy, not comfortably, not with no cost. God, you would you speak to us? Would you comfort those who are afflicted, who are scared, who are uncertain, who feel that taking off the mask might reveal just too much? 
may you provide them the safe spaces that they need to do that. It doesn't need to be with everyone, but it needs to be with someone. For those of us that are comfortable, comfortable in our current relationships, in our safety, may you afflict us. May you push us into new things to welcoming in those that are outside. May this be a space where we know and are known. That begins with us knowing you and walking with you. For those of us outside that Jesus story, may we know we are welcomed in exactly as we are. No strings attached. Thank you, Jesus, for the way that you loved us and gave your life for us. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks for listening, South Family. Have a great rest of your day.